Hey everyone, this is Aaron Cristales, host of UNT Pod. We'll temporarily be on hiatus due to the recent global health crisis. We hope you and yours stay healthy during this trying time. In the meantime, we're offering up this interview with Joanna Davis McGilligat, who arrived at UNT in fall 2019 as an assistant professor of English after nine years at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette, where she taught ethnic studies. McGilligat is co-editor of Narratives of Marginalized Identities in Higher Education, Narrating History, Home, and Nation, and Boom Splat, Comics and Violence. She's currently at work on her first monograph entitled Black and Immigrant, The New Black Diaspora in American Literature and Culture, a critical exploration of representations of immigrants of African descent to the U.S., from Afropolitans to Wakandan Americans. Her areas of teaching and research include Africana Studies, Critical Race and Ethnic Studies, Literary Theory, Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies, Comic Studies, Southern Studies, and 20th and 21st Century U.S. Literary Studies. Here, she discusses the legacy and current state of diversity in comics, as well as a number of her personal favorite comics and graphic novels that are definitely worth checking out. She also touches on Damon Lindelof's recent reboot of Watchmen, starring Oscar winner Regina King, which places the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921 at the heart of its storytelling. The show aired its season finale late last year, but if you're looking for a binge-worthy series to help pass the time, it's available to stream on HBO. Joanna davis McGilligat, thank you so much for joining us. In addition to your prolific scholarly expertise, you also published your own comic in Little Village magazine. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, I've always been a reader of comics since I was very, very small. When um, my dad went to the University of Iowa to get his PhD also, I have my PhD from there as well. Um, And the public library had a massive collection of comics. So we always used to go and read them. Um, And it wasn't until I was in grad school myself that somebody told me that I could capitalize on this interest and write about them. And it wasn't until I got an iPad Pro um, and started researching digital comics that I realized maybe I could do that too. So um, a friend of mine who edits Little Village, she's the editor of Little Village Magazine in Iowa City, Iowa, um, Jordan Sellergren, asked me if I would be willing to write my own comic. And I agreed. um, And I realized that I don't understand how people (laughs) write a graphic novel. It took me, oh, it took me three months to draw one page. Um, But it was an an amazing experience. And I learned a lot about the process of drawing comics, making comics from Linda Berry, um, who's had a few books now where she publishes her syllabi for making comics courses. Um, And it's true what she says that anybody, really anybody can make a comic. If I can, anybody can. <laughs> <laughs> well, what is your, your comic? I mean, can you talk a little bit about the content? Yeah, the content of the comic is about Opelousas, Louisiana, which is where I was living um, in Louisiana. Um, it's a really small town. Um, I think maybe 15,000, 20,000 people. Um, it's pretty rural, but it has such a fascinating history. Jim Bowie um, stabbed the sheriff which is pretty cool. It's the spice capital of um, Louisiana, self-proclaimed. And also it's the sort of nexus of Zydeco, 
Um, so the population is 80% black and overwhelmingly Creole, indigenous, um, and the descendants of, of African slaves. Um, but it's also really precarious. So the average family of five lives on less than $20,000 a year. Um, and the infrastructure is crumbling. Um, a, it rained a lot and one of our central bridges washed out and it, it's only now being fixed and it washed out two and a half years ago. Um, but my experience is living there and connecting with the people there um, because it was my home. It's where my child lived. He went to school there. Um, taught me a lot about what it means to survive in a place like that. A lot of people talk about South Louisiana, especially as though it has no future, especially in the wake of climate change. Um, but I saw people who were inventive and um, surviving and loving. Um, so I wanted to write my comic in honor of those people and their um, survival. So, you know, I know that, in addition to what we were just talking about, that one of your research interests is marginalized identities in higher education. Mm -hmm. um, and you yourself have been very open about how you have often felt on the outside looking in um, as, a, as a queer black woman in higher education. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your experiences and how they've shaped you as a scholar, a writer, and a professor. Sure. I I have to shout this out. I co-edited a collection with um, Keith Dorwick from University of Louisiana Lafayette and Santosh Kotka from California State University Northridge. And the title of that collection is Narratives of Marginalized Identities um, in Higher Education Inside and Outside the Academy. Um, and my chapter in that collection was called On Being the First Black Woman. And I would say that that's been the predominant experience um, that I've had is being one of the first or the only um, at the University of Louisiana. I was the first black woman tenured in my department, um, even though I'm not yet 40. Um, in spite of that, you know, feeling of not it's even not even a feeling, it's a fact of always being the first or the only. Um, I think that's been a pedagogical strength. A lot of my students, um, both in Louisiana and here, um, no, or say to me, you know, I've never had a, a black woman, I've never had a black professor before, I've never had a black woman professor before, I've never had a queer black woman professor before. And I think that that gives me an opportunity to, I mean, it adds some pressure, um, because it's my responsibility then to represent the promise that they can do it, to represent black womanness and queer black womanness in a particular way. Um, but it's also been an incredible honor to be in that position for my students. Um, and I also sense that um, as time goes on, the professoriate is changing. Certainly the population, the student body is changing. Um, and so it's exciting to be on the vanguard, so to speak. So even though um, my experiences as a, a black academic have been certainly shadowed by loneliness, by having to prove that my research interests matter, that they're as important as other people's research interests. Um, I've also found incredible joy um, in mentoring, um, in teaching, and in building connections with other scholars who are in my position. Well, I wonder, too, because I know oftentimes, you know, we trumpet being the first mm -hmm. as being such an incredible thing, 
But I imagine there's also a layer of intimidation, maybe even fear to that. Yeah. I'm wondering how you felt. I absolutely felt afraid because you don't, other people have a path. Um, They don't have to explain, they don't have to explain anything. Um, They don't have to explain their research interests. They don't have to explain why this journal or why this edited collection. Um, It's also a little bit depressing. There are still places where you'll be the first. Um, So yeah, a lot of fear, intimidation, and um, some sadness, I think also is not uncommon um, among scholars especially who contributed to our collection, um, that this is the position that they're in after working so hard. Um, anxiety, I think, would be the, the, the strongest feeling I felt. Um, and I think it's, I'm pretty sure, I have to double check on this, but I'm pretty sure I'll, you know, once the time comes, I'll be the first black woman tenured here again um, in my department. So um, at least I know how that's going to go. Um, so this time around, I feel a lot less anxious about it. When as part of your research, um, looking for solutions to that problem or to try to bring awareness to, to that? So the function of that collection was to give relief and succor to people who are in that same position. Um, so I think that in terms of my research, I'm interested in mentorship um, as a possible solution to the emotional baggage, the emotional weight of being in that position. Um, but in terms of institutional uh, solutions, I certainly think um, research is borne out that there needs to be um, more directed effort in hiring. Um, there needs to be more directed effort in um, mentoring faculty. Um and that there needs to be um, more directed effort in helping students um, navigate the path of higher ed. Um, because people tend to hire people who look like them, people who do the same things they do. So getting black academics, academics of color into those positions, I think, would change everything. Now, I know, too, um, so Currently, you're teaching a class on the literature, philosophy, and aesthetics of Afrofuturism. And that was a concept that was notably brought further into the mainstream by Black Panther recently. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not a new concept. So, for instance, uh, Sun Ra first took a, an Afrofuturistic approach to music in the 1950s. And I'm wondering, you know, how would you define Afrofuturism and how has it evolved over the past several decades? We spent the seminar talking about nothing but that. Um, And I would say that the short answer is that I'm not sure that there is a clean definition, Um, but I would give mine. The term was coined by a white scholar named Mark Derry in 1993 um, in an essay called Black to the Future. And it was actually an interview with um, three black science fiction writers. Um, And he ties Afrofuturism directly to technology. Um, and technological advancement. Um, the, it's uh, in a collection I'm fairly sure about cyberpunk. Um, my definition of Afrofuturism would certainly, I think I could boil it down to this, that there are black people in the future. And I think that that's a fairly simple statement, that there are black people in the future, but it's really radical. Um, imagining that black people survive um, Not just the slave trade, not just Reconstruction and Jim Crow, um, not just the civil rights movement, not the 
post Obama era, um, but that they survive well into the future. Um, and that could include lots of different things. Um, it could include, it doesn't have to include only technological advancement. So one of the novels that we read was um, Jim, Jim, uh, Jewel Gomez's The Gilda Stories. And it's about a black lesbian vampire who um, is, it begins in 1850 when she's just known as the girl um, and she's escaping um, slavery. And then it ends, her name becomes Gilda in 2050 when she's on her way to Machu Picchu to escape an ecological crisis. Um, And you know for sure that at the end of that novel, this slave girl is going to survive well into the future. She's immortal. Um, We read another novel, Octavia Butler's Wild Seed, um, where two immortal Africans who've lived well before the transatlantic slave trade and will exist far into the future. Um, Or I'm writing right now about um, Octavia Butler's trilogy, Xenogenesis trilogy. It's also known as Lilith's Brood, where a Nigerian-American woman survives the end of the earth or the end of the world is um, captured by aliens and becomes the new mother of a new inter-alien human species. Um, And those kinds of ways that black people are projected into the future, having us not only surviving the past, but also altering, um, altering in some really profound way or being substantially a part of um, what comes next is how I, where my interest in Afrofuturism emerges. Um, I also would be remiss if I didn't mention that Nnedi Korafor, who's a fairly well-known um, Nigerian-American science fiction writer, she wrote the Binti series or trilogy. Um, she makes a distinction between Afrofuturism and African futurism or African Jujuism. Part of Derry's uh, definition of Afrofuturism is very U.S.-centric. And I'm also interested in other representations of Afrofuturism that aren't bound by the United States. So Marlon James's Black Leopard, Red Wolf, or um, Nettie Okorafor's um, Zara the Windseeker, um, other texts that consider that Black people are all over the place. Um, Neil Hopkinson's Midnight Robber, um, for example, texts that imagine Black people in the diaspora as um, being substantively a part in shaping the future. I'm wondering, too, I mean, what do you think are the, or maybe not implications, maybe that's not the right word, but do you think it's problematic that the term itself came from a white academic? Yeah, I mean, if when you read, I think it's really well worth reading the essay, which I'm pretty sure everybody, if they Googled it, could find online. Um, yeah, in fact. And I think that that's addressed in the interview uh, in the piece itself, Derry outlines it. And in his interview with Samuel Delaney, who is a very well-known gay black science fiction writer, um, he asks him questions that you would only ask a black writer. Um, and Samuel Delaney is very clear that you're asking me about the identity of my characters because I'm black. And Delaney makes a really interesting distinction in that essay. I mean, it's it's worth it, I think, um, reading it for this distinction between what Delaney calls um, software, people who are who develop software and people who develop hardware. Um, if you think about software engineers, they're normally 
I don't know, like Steve Jobs, right? Um, wealthy, white, um, I mean, educated, et cetera, um, that they have some, that is a, Delaney makes a distinction between software engineers and hardware engineers. Hardware engineers, in his estimation, are a kid who can, you know, reverse engineer a toaster and put it back together again, or um, somebody who finds an iPod and figures out how it works, that those are a separate sort of skill. Um, That's not what we typically imagine when we think of science fiction. Um, And those are the kinds of people that Samuel Delaney was interested in writing about. Um, Kids who don't have great educations, um, who don't have access to... um, the kind of financial resources somebody like Steve Jobs has, but who have an innate curiosity and a drive to know how things work. Um, so my students and I grappled with dairy, and thankfully, plenty of other people have um, expanded on this. If people were interested, I would recommend that they look to Isaiah Lavender the Third or Atasha Womack, um, whose work my students were really compelled by. Isaiah Lavender the Third, in particular, he is a brilliant. Um, reading of slave narratives as pocket universes um, and time no time travel narratives slave narratives as time travel narratives um, which is right on point so um, part of the problem in academia is that the major producers of knowledge especially in well in all fields are you know are, are going to be white um, so I would say that it's not that white scholars can't um, do this work and do it well, but often, as Delaney pointed out, they miss that crucial distinction between the software engineer and the hardware engineer. Um, so I would say that we wouldn't want to rely solely on Derry's definition. You're, you are an expert in comic studies, but I'm wondering if you know researching and teaching comic studies has changed your fandom at all. That is such a good question. I thought about this. <laughs> um, I'm going to say it's made me a more adventurous reader. A lot of my students tend to think of comics as superhero comics, Marvel and DC. Um, but I was always really alienated by them. Um, I never I never spent a time... I mean, I would read X-Men, which I think makes sense um, because of Storm. Um, but most superhero comics did not interest me over much. I was really interested in um, funny animal comics. My favorite comics when I was a kid were Calvin and Hobbes. I loved newspaper strips, um, which are kind of hard, difficult to teach. Um, but I would read just the worst ones, like Kathy. Um, I like Kathy. Um, Foxtrot, for better or worse. Um, sort of sitcom-ish comics, situational humor. Um and Pogo, I remember sitting with my grandpa and him making me talk in the accent of the comic and I'd be like, Grandpa, why are you doing this to me? Um, my grandpa would always save the funny pages for me. So I think that my, my probably my first entree into comics was um, comic strips. Um, I would say being a scholar of comics has shown me the utility of my fandom. It's for a long time I sort of thought that it was wasted knowledge. Not really wasted knowledge because I didn't feel ashamed of it. I just, it was something that I was going to read and pursue on my own and I was never going to have a chance to write about it. Um, It just was separate from academic thought. Um, One of the things that has been exciting for me is to show my students the world of comics beyond 
superhero comics. Um, I teach a course um, on nonfiction comics, not just memoirs, but comics journalism like Joe Sacco um, or the strange sort of life writing that Harvey Picar does. Um, I like to show my students underground and independent comics. Um, one of my favorite comic artists is Chris Ware. Um, his comics are somewhat inexplicable. Um, he, one of his comics is building stories. It's in a box, like a, like a Monopoly game. And it's 18 ish different pieces. Um, I've taught that a few times. So I think for me, being able to be a, a, a scholar of comic studies has been sort of a validation of what I was fairly certain um, was an intellectual dead end. Um, and I have to, I have to thank um, my professor, Corey Creekmer at University of Iowa for that. He taught a course on race and racism in popular American literature. And he put my favorite comic artists, um, Los Bros Hernandez, um, their comic Love and Rockets on the syllabus. And I couldn't believe it. It was alongside Harriet Beecher Stowe. Um, so I, I realized if I can teach Los Bros Hernandez alongside Harriet Beecher Stowe, then I have a career in this. Um, so I think it's been validating for my fandom. Um, I've, I find everywhere I look in comic studies, um, people who are interested in what I'm interested in, and not just academics, but... Um, Fans, art historians, librarians, it's just a really dynamic and super fun field. Well, I'm wondering if you feel like there's a turning point where comics finally gained sort of the seriousness that allowed them to be part of, say, a higher education curriculum. Yeah, I I think maybe people would say that about Art Spiegelman's Mouse. Um and it's funny, I wrote an encyclopedia article about Art Spiegelman, and he invented the Wacky Pack and the Garbage Pail Kids. Um, I mean, he's got a a gutter sense of humor, but he wrote this, I mean, absolutely amazing memoir of his father's experiences in the Holocaust. And I think that it's when people saw Spiegelman's mouse and saw what could be done with it that um, it opened up possibilities for other artists um i also think and this is cynical but calling them graphic novels um because graphic novels to my mind is a generic thing um not every comic is a graphic novel um joe sacco's palestine is graphic journalism um i would call mouse a graphic biography um alison bechtel's fun home is a graphic memoir um, so I would say that it was calling them graphic novels, not comics and cartoons. And then also the Spiegelman's mouse, which allowed people to see that you could treat serious subjects in this medium. Um, and I think that that was a good thing because it means that we can go back and look at other things. Uh, Francois Mouly and Art Spiegelman have edited collections of children's comics. Um, so I think he does his part to lend credibility and credence to a variety of genres in the comics medium. Well, when will we finally have a class on Kathy? Oh, as soon as I can. <laughs> Immediately. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but at Comic-Con this year, there was a panel entitled Diversity in Comics, Why Inclusion Matters. 
And I'm wondering, what does the history of diversity and inclusion look like in the comics industry? My entree into this is to think about racial caricature, which, um, in my estimation, forms the basis of how we make sense of comics. The principle of physiognomy, which is where you look at somebody's face and their facial features, um, tell you something about their character, um, is the root of comics art and cartooning. Um, so when I teach this, I talk to my students about Beauty and the Beast. Um, Gaston is, he's got a, a heavy jaw. He's very muscular. He's got a smaller head than he does um, waist. Um, I mean, his shoulders are grotesquely bigger than his waist. Um, and, and without much effort, people can understand um what this guy is like, um, something about his character, which is that he's kind of a sleazeball. Um, I just took my kid to see for frozen Two. Olaf looks silly. Um, he's got a huge head and a tiny body, um, and a giant nose and ridiculous teeth. Um, and that shows that he's goofy and probably not that smart. We wouldn't use the principles of physiognomy though. People did, um, to apply to real, human beings in real life. Um, if you have a big nose, that doesn't mean you're greedy. But in comics art, according to the principles of physiognomy, that's what it means. The person who wrote about this first was Rudolf Terpfer. Um, so the history of caricature in comics means that there's a very fine line between writing a race, drawing a racist caricature and drawing a faithful representation of somebody in that medium. So for a long time, Racist caricature was the foundation of comic art. Um, that's how comics had their meaning. Um, it wasn't until, I don't know, the turn of the century thereafter um, that you began to have a wider variety of artists and therefore a wider variety of styles. Um, but in a contemporary moment, um, I mean, it, it always fascinates me that we're still having conversations about diversity and representation in comics. Um, and, you know, the comics medium has been flourishing for so very long. Um, it seems like in children's comics, which I do read a fair amount of, I do see more diversity than before. And I think the general interest in comics art has meant that um, there are more people making comics than ever before. Um, I was thinking of Jeremy Love's Bayou comics, um, Los Bros Hernandez, nor Hernandez, obviously. Um, but still it's harder for me. It's still difficult for me to go into the comic shop. and know that I can leave finding a comic with somebody who looks like me in it. Um, so we're still not quite there yet. I will say though, that, I see wider representation of women and girls um, in comics than I did before. One comic I've been reading um, is Paper Girls, which I cannot say enough about. It's just amazing. Um, and it's about four young girls who are paper girls, not paper boys. Um, there's time travel and aliens, um, which you don't expect. Um, so I would say that there's awareness, and that's a positive good. Um but we're still there's still a ways to go um, to, to balance. Um, I think the perception of people's the perception is that people who are interested in comics are young white boys. 
And I don't think that's true. I think lots of people read comics and have been filling in the blanks, um, reading com- filling themselves in where they'd like to see themselves for a really long time. When it seems like there's a lot of overlap between your research when it comes to higher education and then also the same sort of issue in, in comic studies as well. Absolutely. I think I'm always interested in marginalized peoples and marginalized medium. Um, I'm not really sure why that is. Um, I think it's just a, I think that it might be, I think this is maybe why it is. Um, these are the things that I was interested in um, as a, little black kid as a young black woman as a middle-aged black woman getting there um and now that I have the opportunity to research these things um to write about them to bring them into the light of day um it's important to me to validate those interests and then also point out that I'm not the only one um who's interested in these things um so, yeah, I mean, I, I would say that the overlap always lies in um, my my long-term interests that I think were marginalized then and are becoming more and more mainstreamed now. So you kind of, you talked a little bit about how in recent years there's been an uptick in inclusivity in comics, particularly when it comes to women and girls. Um, so obviously, you know, there was this success of Black Panther um, into the Spider-Verse, Captain Marvel, Wonder Woman, um, Sam Wilson took on the, the mantle of Captain America, Batwoman in recent years was written as a gay character. I'm wondering, so considering that pop culture is such an important way for people to connect and has long reflected our greater culture, what do you think is the importance of introducing more inclusivity into the genre? Comics are, so Scott McCloud, who wrote Understanding Comics, argues that comics are such a popular medium because they allow you to fill yourself up in them. Um, And that's true to a point. I mean, comics are blank enough that I imagined myself as being Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes. But there's some, there's a gap that I have to jump um, for me to imagine myself as Calvin. Um, And it's... It's a kind of labor that I think often women of color um, and people of color have to make that that leap um, to imagine themselves always or fill themselves up in the other. Um, so I think that the boon of more inclusivity is to encourage readerly empathy, narrative empathy, to encourage people to see and read themselves um, substantively as somebody else. Also, um, you know, I have a, a little boy um, and it's important for him to be able to see characters who look like him, to see families that look like his represented. Um, I think it's something that people take for granted, um, that, you know, you can always go to the bookstore and pick up a book that, you know, your looks like you, that shows a family like yours. Um, and not everybody can do that. So I think that, that the boon there is to sort of close that empathy gap and then to provide more opportunities for different stories to be told. Um, sometimes it sort of stuns me that people will be in awe that, um, you know, a story of like Coco, maybe like people are like, Oh, it's so good. Wow. Well, yeah, there's lots of different stories we can tell, you know? Um, so I think that when it comes to cartoons and cartooning, it's something I've seen Disney slowly start to embrace the value of telling 
and Pixar to some extent, um, maybe to a greater extent, to show stories and cartoons um, that have a wide appeal. You know, there's no, I don't think we need to have this anxiety um, that a story about, or a comic book about um, black children wouldn't be popular to everybody. I think that's been proven wrong over and over again. Right. Mm -hmm. But I wonder too, and this, this is something maybe I just pick up on as a woman, but when it comes to inclusivity, it still feels like when it comes to body types, Mm -hmm. you don't see a lot of inclusivity in comics. And I'm wondering if that's something you've seen as as a person who studies comics Mm -hmm. and, you know, sees probably a a wider variety than maybe your normal um, fan would Mm -hmm. if if you're seeing any kind of shift in in that type of inclusivity as well. I haven't seen, well, that's not true. Um, And one of the most fascinating comic experiences of the perhaps all time is Los Bros Hernandez's Love and Rockets. Um, the characters Maggie uh, and Hopi are aging, and the comic started in the eighties, and so they're in there. You know, they're nearly fifty now, and Maggie's always been curvy, um, and now she's getting older. Her hair is gray, and she's still prominently featured. And they don't shy away from you know Maggie's beauty, um, from showing her as she really is. Um, and also in building stories, I wrote about this in an in an essay called Body Schemas, um, Chris Ware's Building Stories, um, the the character there um, is an amputee. She lost her leg when she was a child, um, and she's had a baby and is, um, I don't know, in her mid-40s. And he draws her body in so many ways. I mean, it's like hyper-attentive to representing um her body as it is um it's it's definitely a problem in superhero comics um but even then i think i've seen some pretty substantive pushback against some of the more atrocious and ridiculous representations of men and women's bodies in in comics and i think that the more we encourage comics artists and comics writers from a variety of different backgrounds like Joe Sacco's comics feature real people Linda Berry's avatar is a little monkey but then she draws herself um you know it's not I wouldn't call it realistic but she's drawing a variety of different types of people um even Alison Bechtel's um series her comic strip Dykes to Watch Out For draw you know represents a huge variety of different types of women so i see it mostly in underground comics i think that the more mainstream you go i'm less likely to see it but even then in children's comics um i do see some some increasing diversity in body size and shape so of course hbo recently relaunched the Watchmen as a TV show and it features an african american actress oscar winner regina king as the lead and Rorschach is reimagined as the face of white supremacy. The first scene of the series, it even reenacted the real-life Tulsa race riots of 1921. And of course, the original Watchmen graphic novel had plot points that revolved around the Vietnam War. If you look at Captain America, it's kind of inextricably linked uh, to the events of World War II. And so I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on positioning historical events and political climates within the framework of comics? I spend a lot of my time thinking about this. I recently wrote an essay about John Lewis 
Andrew Aiden and Nate Powell's March book one. Um, I think that history is an ideal medium uh, or comics is an ideal medium for the exploration of history um, because it's really elastic. Um, you can do a lot with it. And when I was a small kid, I used to get these comics that were basically mini history lessons in comic form. They probably still make them. Um, I think they were called illustrated classics, maybe. Um, and I had a, a passel of them about one about Crispus Attucks, one about Harriet Tubman, where they sort of just draw um, the history unfolding. I would say about Watchmen, um, because it's speculative fiction, um, it I was amazed um, and pleased to see the wide-reaching effect that um, that series staging the Tulsa riots um, had on people's awareness of violence against black people. Um, and I think that because Watchmen is not bound to the rules of time and space um, that we are bound to here, they can elevate um, historical moments in ways that a simple history lesson couldn't do. I think it's, it provides viewers with an opportunity to think about those things in a new way. It doesn't seem, this is maybe going to sound ridiculous, but a lot of my students struggle with confronting America's racist past. Um, there's a lot of anxiety about what they can do about it, or there's anxiety about what they didn't know, um, or what they weren't told, or mistruths they were told um and a a television show like watchmen can do a lot of work by staging that um in a sort of speculative frame i think it gives more weight to the real realism of that event so i was thinking also of um kyle baker's truth red white and black which reimagines captain america as a black um man whose experimentation is analogous to the Tuskegee experiments, um, which is sort of watch. I mean, sort of like what Watchmen is doing with history. Um, it reframes real life events in a speculative frame, which allows people to sort of confront them um, in a new way. Um, and I think that that's a an undervalued aspect of of the work that comics can do. Um, so the relaunch of Watchmen was created by Damon Lindelof, who is known for these philosophical TV shows like Lost and The Leftovers. Ta-Nehisi Coates, who's best known as a writer for The Atlantic and nonfiction works like Between the World and Me, kind of ushered in a new era for Black Panther um, with 2016's A Nation Under Our Feet. So how do you think writers who have traditionally worked outside of comics are bringing new perspectives to that genre. It's really exciting um, to see this happen um, because I think for a long time people imagined comics or comics worked on a studio model, you know, where you had stock writers and stock storylines and um, stock artists. Um, they brought their own flair, obviously, um, but there's only so much expansion outside of the frame that would be allowed. Um, I think that allowing or encouraging um, something like Ta-Nehisi Coates or E-Viewing. The poet um, has a Marvel series, Ironheart. Um, I would say that it has something to do with reader 
with readerly reception, um, with readers' ability to see comics as a serious medium. Um, I still run into people who think of comics as a childish thing, and who even see superhero comics, even though they do so much cultural work, um, and are clearly highly valued by um, people, um, still think of them as somewhat silly or beside the point or juvenile. Um, So I like to see people who are probably long-term readers of comics um, or appreciators of particular characters um, come and breathe new life into it. Um, Ta-Nehisi Coates and Roxanne Gay, their um, Black Panther have their own flair. Um, and I think it adds more allows people to sort of engage with comics in the way that I like to engage with comics, which is to say critically, um, to allow people to think of comics as a serious medium, just like they would think of the water dancer, Ta-Nehisi Coates' novel, um, or Roxane Gay's essays. Um, so I love to see it. It's exciting to me. Um, and it also, I think, I, I would imagine, or I would hope, would impress upon people that comics writers like Daniel Close or Jeremy Love, Chris Ware, Linda Berry are also serious writers in their own right. Um, and not spend a, a labor of love for me showing people that comics writing is a, is a skill. Um, it's not easy to do. Um, so, I mean, it's exciting and I, I'm really, I'm looking forward to see what, who else writes a comic. Maybe, maybe J.K. Rowling will. Awesome. I would. I would read a <laughs> Harry Potter comic. <laughs> but if you could only read one comic for the rest of your life, which one would you pick? I would pick Los Bros Hernandez's Locus, which is a compendium, so it's really not that fair. Um, but I mean, I love Los Bros Hernandez were my first interest in comics. Um, seeing mixed race Latinx characters um, who were interested in punk rock and um, lived in their neighborhood and their kid. I mean, it's just amazing. It's just, it's, it's my absolute favorite comic of all time. Well, thank you so much for being with us today and for sharing your expertise. It was fascinating. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to UNT pod to listen to previous episodes, search for UNT pod, wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to connect with us on Twitter at UNT Social and on Instagram at UNT.